and welcome to the Flourish Podcast, where we at the Palouse Conservation District interview farmers, ranchers, and researchers on topics in conservation agriculture. also known as Farmers Leading Our United Revolution in Soil Health, is a farmer-led conservation innovation project to support the widespread adoption of soil health practices by integrating cover crops and livestock into farming operations. The ambitious purpose of Flourish is to not only regenerate our soils, but also our rural communities by creating opportunities for younger generations to return to productive, sustainable farms. On this podcast, we bring you updates from on-farm trials, research findings, and advice from farmers. Hello. Thanks for tuning back into the Flores podcast. I'm Ryan Boylan, the host of this podcast, where we focus on interviews with farmers participating in the Flourish on-farm trials. If you haven't already, be sure to check out our previous episode to learn more about the Flourish project. We interviewed Jason Bishop of Living Heritage Farms all about his idea for Flourish and how it all got started. After that episode aired in November 2023, we hosted a Flourish participant meeting with all 26 producers that are part of the project. We discussed our first year of trials, the preliminary data, and what we're looking for for the year ahead. At that meeting, it was great because we got a lot of questions, mainly things focusing on extracts and cropping insurance. We wanted to dive deeper into some of these questions with this podcast, so we sat down at the Spokane Conservation District in early December to chat with Josh Riddle, a farmer in the region and a participant in the Flourish Arm Farm Trials. We got to talking and took a meandering path covering so many topics that we decided to split our conversation into two parts. This is the first part where Josh shares what got him into farming, cover cropping, and other alternative cropping practices, as well as some ideas as to where farming could go in the future. I'm here today at the Spokane Conservation District office with Josh Riddle from Farmit. Thanks for joining us today, Josh. Yeah, no problem. Um, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about your farming operation, maybe where you farm, how much precip you get. Yeah. Um, so I farm out on the Peon Prairie and then up into the Colbert area, which is known as Big, as big Meadows. Uh, my farm's not your normal farm in the sense of I actually was kind of going through these questions last night you kind of prepped me with. And uh, I got rid of some land this last year, which dropped me down to 100 landlords. <laughs> so <laughs> that's all. And I'm saying 100. And that's actually, yeah, land chunks that are so usually there's two people to each landlord I call, you know, property. So probably I'm close to 200 people I deal with every day that are owners of the land. Um, so that's a little bit of a different experience for us than most farmers. And then up there, the average size of my ground is 20 acres. Um, so we've got quite a few tracks that I spend a lot of time moving. I'm in the public eye and I'm a fourth generation farmer, but I had to start on my own. I kind of came, I moved away, went to college and then moved away and did some work with youth and then decided I missed the deer and the trees and the four seasons and said, I got to come back. And my grandparents were like, come back. And so uh, when I came back, there just wasn't enough money for two families. My dad couldn't support a whole nother family. And I'd just been married and had a, was had a baby on the way. And so I started out, um, with a tractor, I went and bought a tractor and a rototiller and a bush hog. And my business started from there where I went around and took care of all these 10 acre tracks in Spokane that were starting to pop up that no one wanted to farm anymore. And so I would just go in and plant grass, 
mow them. And it was kind of like a glorified lawn care company is what I told people. <laughs> like I get to drive a tractor and you push a lawnmower. You yeah. know? Um, and so just from doing that, uh, bigger clients came along. Um, and so there was a, one family was in particular, the Millers that were really cool. They said, Hey, we have a hundred acres. We can't get made to farm it. We'll pay you to seed it to grass and you can just do whatever you want to do. We just want it not to be weeds. And were you haying for a while? So at that point I hadn't, I bought a harrow bed for a little while. I uh, tried to do some custom hauling and this is like early two thousands. The hay price hadn't hit its big spike where it finally started like, Oh, we're going to get $150 a ton. Um, we're still back in the hundred dollar range. And, um, my dad's operation currently at the time, he's still, he's like just tough. He's tough as nails. They're still out there hand picking the bales. So as a kid, I grew up, I always told people I will never do square bales again because <laughs> I'm allergic to them. And they're like, what do you mean you're allergic to bales? And I said, well, when your dad farms 640 acres of dry land, hay, and you and your brothers go hand pick it all. <laughs> and we had pretty, pretty good ground. So we were doing a lot of second cutting. It was a lot of fun in the sense that we had three picking crews. So we had our buddies out there. Um, and so we got to like really have a good time, but with it was a lot of long days in people's barns, you yeah. know, and you're just like throwing bells around and the dust and the heat. <laughs> and you're just like, I just want to go play baseball or something, you know? Yeah. So then when did you start growing wheat or? So back to the Miller family, um, kind of the concept was talking to some of the farmers out there that were farming on the prairie where like, we don't want to farm those, but I don't know how you're going to make any money, kid. You should just charge people. And I was like, Oh, I can't do that. And so talking with John Miller was his name and he's a pretty successful businessman in town. He said, you should just, you know, see if they'll do it, let you do it for free and see what happens. And so, um, I just started picking up ground. He actually had a swather there at the time. We had one too. And he said, here, just use this. And it's kind of a funny start, but I, I owe a lot of it to that guy. He just, uh, he would look at me and say, keep going, keep going. And so now granted he had horrible ground. It was like a <laughs> pH of five. We got like a ton of the acre hay, which was, and it was steep and rocky. And so I just kind of look back and I still farm their place. And, oh, nice. um, but from there, just kind of the dream of, we had also, I grew up on a wheat farm. So we were farming about, I think at the time, 1700 acres of wheat. And then we had the 600 acres of hay. And so I loved harvest. I mean, there was just, it was just a fun time. And so I finally went and bought a combine one day and put in some oats and said, I'm going to start, you know, my dad thought I was crazy. He's like, there's a reason why we're doing hay now, you know, wheat prices have been so bad. And so uh, it was kind of funny the second year I planted some, I had some pretty rough ground. So I knew that I could probably hit protein with DNS. And so I put some DNS in and it was like the second year into farming, I hit the $15 wheat. Really? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I love this thing. Yeah, like, this yeah. is amazing, you know? And so, uh, yeah, that's kind of, so from there, just the, the land just kind of is slowly, you know, picked up more and more small acres and just kept doing it and got to learn to say no. I kind of set, shut my custom business down. Um, cause I couldn't do it all. We were, that kind of started into where we'd seed all the time. And then we were spraying properties and, um, which is kind of what also led me down this road that eventually, you know, we're going to talk about, but just spraying all the time. Um, I started to feel crummy Yeah. and kind of a side note. I actually went through a battle of cancer and it had nothing to do with spraying come to find out, but it was a genetic mutation that I was born with. And we just found out at that time too, my daughter had it. Oh, wow. 
And so, um, thankfully my families are huge. My mom and dad's families are both families of eight kids. Mm -hmm. And usually this disease like goes back, you know, they go, Oh no, so-and-so's got it. And it was kind of a answer to prayer. Just saying you're the mutant. Yeah. So, um, but with that, I, I started to realize like, okay, some of these sprays I can't do anymore. I can't spray Gramox anymore. I sprayed a lot of hay fields and mm -hmm. I was like, this stuff is not good. Yeah. Um, and so that led me down kind of the road of like, how do we farm a little cleaner? It was easier to go, hay. you saw perennials, but I, I didn't love hay like I do wheat, like just growing something that year and peas and lentils and triticale. And I remember growing triticale out there and everybody's like, what is that? You know, what yeah. does that word even mean? It's like, actually, I don't really know either, but it sounds cool. And I think I'm going to try it. So, yeah, cool. um, and then, so yeah, so I don't know if I'm getting too far off a tangent. No, no, no but. that's great. Um, that, it's a really good segue, actually. So I, I, part of the, the show or podcast is to interview the folks that are participating in the Flourish Project, which again is just farmers leading our United Revolution in Soil Health. And uh, I'm just interested as to why you wanted to join. And then maybe we could get into like some of the motivations for moving that direction. Yeah. So Jason, who had on your last podcast, um, got me to join because he said, hey, can you write in why you're using cover crops and um, kind of back that up a little bit. Uh, Jason, I met at the Joel Salton conference here in Spokane. Oh, nice. And so just randomness, there was a guy named Denver Black and Chris Eckhart who, you know, yeah, you yeah. know Chris and um, Chris is a farmer up in Deer Park and him and I kind of gone round and round. And so Jason asked us to write for this. And I think the first round that you guys didn't get it. And mm -hmm. then the second round, I don't even remember what I wrote or why I did it or wanted to do it. I actually, the only reason I did cover crops is I thought they were cool looking. <laughs> like, <laughs> Just, I mean, there was a little bit of soil health, but I couldn't see like this 50 bushel gain on my weed. Or, and I didn't have a yield monitor when I first started doing them you know, 10, 15 years ago, like where I'd say, oh, I got five bushel more. I didn't, yeah, no idea. can't visually see that. Yeah. So um, and it was just for fun, you know, just like, Oh, I throw some sunflowers in there and these radishes, see how big they get. Yeah. And so, so that's kind of why I joined. Um, and then talking with Jason, he said, you guys got the grant. Is that, it's a grant, right? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Um, that's how much I actually know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. Uh, yeah. I had been. And so I was like, what's going on? What's it look like? And he's like, Oh, it's going to be great. Like there's I don't know if I should say this, like, there's no rules, but <laughs> <laughs> like you can plant whatever you want. Um, and so Jason knows I've tried doing some other programs and with some of my progressive ideas, like it got me kicked out of some NRCS contracts and yeah. there was some pain there that I was like, I don't know if I'm ever going to sign up for another free money grant <laughs> yeah, project, definitely. anything. Um, yeah, there can definitely be a lot of sideboards, but that was one of the motivations and, and Jason like pushing just to be like, yeah, we should just let the farmers do what they can do. Yeah. So which, you're right there. I mean, there are some rules, Yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah, we're just trying to let you guys do whatever work for your farm. So, yeah. So that's really, um, probably how I got involved, you know, mm -hmm. like it was just like, cause Jason and meeting him years ago and, um, yeah. So you've sort of touched on this a little bit, but, um, wanting to get away from spraying so much was like sort of a motivation for like going down this path, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, so, um, maybe back it a little bit for, further back going through the health stuff, oh, yeah. um, is where things kind of started to come and right. It's really, it's kind of the perfect storm. I feel like life comes at you in these waves yeah. and it's like you climb the mountain or you sit there and you don't climb and you don't learn anything. But, um, while that mountain was going on, uh, our local EPA, 
fella showed up and started putting the hammer down on some of the farmers because we had an environmentalist in our neighborhood that moved on one of these 10 acre tracks. And he made some pretty outlandish statements and being farmers and we tend to not be very network oriented where we should have probably like all of us should at the time gathered together and made a plan and said, here's what we're going to do. And this is, these aren't necessarily true statements and some might be, but we don't, you know, there's no proof. So I was pretty scared. I was like, dang, dude, um, I don't want a $10,000 fine. They were coming in threatening farmers with $10,000. There was every day there was mud in the water. They could find any, you know, and it was like one of those things that I'm like $10,000 would sink me. Yeah. You know, and so I kind of was like, I can't do this. So I left actually on a trip back to DC for health stuff. Um, we were, we're kind of lab rats, my daughter and I, like I kind of, we joke about it, but they go poke us and test us and like to see what's going on. And so when I was going back there, I just come across, I was just Googling like crazy on how do you find good no-till tactics or what are like ways to not buy fertilizer and that year also, I'd kind of run into where we'd had a drought the year before. I'm trying to remember. I think this was 2007. I have to, should have wrote some notes down. No, but yeah. um, we had a drought. The crops weren't great. And I was like, man, I don't know. Um, I don't know if like, I want to buy all this fertilizer. So we used a bunch of gypsum. And I'd been reading articles about gypsum and calcium and plants need calcium. And prior the year prior, I had um, 400 acres of wheat just go flat. Huh. And I was like... It was a storm that came in two inches, blew 30 miles an hour sideways, knocked it over. We had really nice looking crop, but it just flattened it. And I was like, I got to figure out how to make these plants stronger. Like, what is it? You know, like you heard of, I think it's Norman Barlog. Yeah. So he, he shrunk wheat down. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 WSU guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, Dwarf wheat varieties. Yeah. yeah. So I was looking in and so I was like, calcium is like what plants need to make stronger stems. And I was like, hmm, so let's try jip. And so I went out and gypped. 600 acres that year and I didn't fertilize and she used gypsum and I raised the same crop I did the year before. And I was whoa. like, whoa, what the heck, you know, kind of, um, made my mind explode, but I was going through a lot, um, at the time. And so as I was also Googling, this guy, Gabe Brown popped up mm. and I'm talking, it's like an old school video. It was on there. <laughs> yeah. uh, I always, I try to find it every once in a while and I'm like, I don't know which one I watch, but <laughs> I, started seeing videos of his stuff and in a Lang Ingram was popped up a couple of times and they were like showing these slides of like organisms and he made some statement in there and it's always stuck with me and it's kind of what is one of the things is, but there's in two handfuls of healthy soil, there's more living creatures than on top of all of the earth. Yeah. And I yeah, was yeah. like, what the heck? And so I called Chris Eckhart who farms up in Deer Park and um, I said, Hey dude, like I'm thinking about going no till. And he was like, dude, no till, no yields, you know, and we were, and I was like, I know that's how I feel too. You know, we have plows for a reason in these big tractors, you know, let's let it rip. And, um, but I said, Hey, check this out. I got to go to DC, watch this video and just see what you think. Like, I can't stop unseeing it. And like, mm -hmm. it just makes sense. And so I'm not, I kid you not, this is a hilarious story, but I land and kind of called him because I was like, you know, hey, how's it going? What I miss? You know, kind of that farmer, like, what, what yeah, happened yeah. when I was gone? You know, what's been going on in the neighborhood? How the crops look? He's like, get over here now. Like, you got to get to my house right now. And I'm like, I just landed, buddy. And he's like, no, I'm serious. Like, drive to my house right now. And so I looked at my wife and kids. Is like, yeah, I'm actually going to get in the car. And I'm heading out. And they're like, really? And so I drove to Chris's house and he's got a microscope sitting on his counter. <laughs> no way. And I'm like, 
what? And he's like, you got to see this. And I was like, really? And he's like, it's real. And so we started, I was looking at his microscope and he had a little camera on there and was up on his screen and little creatures are going around and eating each other and oh, poking cool. each other. And I'm like, Oh wow. He goes, so that's the field that it's over there by the fence row down so-and-so and it's really good land. And he goes, here's my other field. And like the screen like had a quarter of, Oh really? And I don't, and it was shocking. You're like, where'd they all go? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? And, and so that kind of started us down this crazy yeah. road of um, like, what do we do? you know, throwing paint on the wall, like, okay, maybe, but then still trying to make a living. Cause we had no idea what was going on and I wasn't going to run cows on around all my houses and he wasn't going to put in fence. And so, yeah, that's cool that you guys were talking about like having plows for a reason. And then once you see it, you're like, oh, maybe we should make a change. <laughs> yeah. Like, or what would just like, what do you do with this? You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. How, how do you even, uh, find, you know, time to research this or what? Yeah. So, some of that stuff we found out and then we kind of went on the back burner mm-hmm. and now, cause I mean, that was back in 2007. Yeah. So here we are. So can I just circle back really quick? Whatever yeah. happened. So you applied gypsum, maybe then converted to no-till, but did the EPA get off your back at some point? Yeah. So I still stayed under the radar um, okay. at the time. And actually I called the local Spokane conservation district and talked with Ty Meyer. They oh, had nice. bought a no-till drill at the time. And so I started trying some no-till and funny story was at the time as I was, this is probably I'm 2010, 13, I, time's going to kind of fly by there. But, um, my grandpa sat on the board here. Oh, no way. And he remembered, he talked to me about guys like Tracy Erickson and they went up there and dumped like a whole tanker load of water on the hill and it disappeared. And like, you got to try this. And I was like, no grandpa, like, like it's not, that's not going to work here. You know, that's, but that's all I was ever told though, too. Like every farmer in the neighborhood said that doesn't work here. It doesn't work. It works there, but won't work here. And, um, so Ty had a project and we tried it and, um, it made sense, but I was like, dude, my little, at the time I was probably farming 1100 acres, cannot afford a quad track mm-hmm. and a cross lot drill. Like, so now what? Yeah. And, um, I lost track where we were going. <laughs> no, it's okay. So it sounds like, yeah. So- <laughs> oh yeah. So the back to the gypsum, that's what it was. So we started the bio farming group also shortly after this with Ty at the conservation district. And, um, I was telling my story in there and they were like, calcium and so you start that, that kind of led us down this road of like whoa calcium and how do you get calcium mm-hmm. and I was like well I use gypsum and there's a lot of people that say well you it won't change your pH and um kind of circling back to Gabe Brown Gabe Brown talks about if your calcium's tanking your pH is coming really quick behind it mm-hmm. like if you can start to see that and so I was like oh this is an interesting yeah concept um but we were having issues at the time also trying to get across the acres with gypsum at 200 pounds and then work the ground, seed it, and then still doing what we were doing. It was like, this isn't very efficient at the moment. Yeah. So, and and then, so, okay, I guess like no-till going no-till was like one step. Gypsum was another one. And then now you've gone like. Yeah. So no-till went to no (laughs) yield for Josh. Oh, yeah. Um, Anybody's like, hang on five years, you know? And uh, so during that time um, I had tried, fish emulsion. Uh, I got kicked out of NRCS program for that. Uh, I had done cover crops, lost crop insurance over that, um, and been audited a lot. So there's been, it's been a really, I'm excited for new growers or not new, but growers that are going now because it's, 
it's coming. I remember having the crop insurance guy actually, they audited me and they're like, you're doing cover crops and you did fish for fertilizer. Like this doesn't fall in conventional farming and you don't qualify for insurance. So we were going rounds and rounds and the guy came out from the Midwest and he was blown away, um, flying over and then driving through town. He's like, people in the Midwest would go to jail farming like this. Really? And I was like, that's pretty extreme. And I don't, um, I don't ever want to tell people how to farm. Mm-hmm. I'm really not that way. Mm-hmm. I think it's everybody's journey and there's totally different yeah. styles. And then how do we feed the masses? And, you know, so, um, but he said, he kind of basically long story short, was like, Hey man, you're really progressive and their crop insurance isn't out this way. Isn't set up for that yet. And so kind of hearing in our flourish meeting that crop, you know, they were saying crop insurance is changing and cover crops is now yep. being recognized. And so, that part's super exciting for me to see that we're coming. So the complications between cover cropping and crop insurance is a pretty common conversation when you have a bunch of farmers in a room. Typically, folks that farm in areas that have less precipitation have bigger issues with this. Regardless, after Josh and I talked about his motivations for cover crops and all the other conservation practices that he's incorporating in his rotation, we started to talk more about his motivations to improve food quality as well as the gut microbiome. At some point, you'll hear me mention a book. I call it You Are What You Ate, and that's not actually the title. I was referring to What Your Food Ate by David Montgomery and Ann Beakley. It's a really good read. It has a lot of cool ideas, and we actually started a book club in our office to read through it last year. Josh and I also talked about the disconnect with where our food comes from and how we can get more people onto the farm. So some of my motivation now is um, there's a lot of, a lot of it's actually our quality of food. Um, and realizing that food heals is a topic. Um, I would say if you are not sure you believe that, like, come talk to me. I'll give you one of my, uh, kombucha scobies and you can (laughs) drink kombucha and make your own style and flavor. And it sounds super cheesy and hippie. Um, but it's like, it's amazing when you start to realize your gut changes. Mm-hmm. And uh, last night, actually, as we we're staying, this kind of like a side topic is people are always like, why do you farm? You know, I'm like, well, it's in my blood. Like, yeah. I, that's, I, you know, it's like, I, you know, it's imprinted in my system. They're like, yeah, go farm. It doesn't make sense, especially where you are. Like, you should just go try to find a farm somewhere else and work for somebody. But um, <laughs> I was actually sitting there going, I wonder if farming's in my microbiome. Oh, because you start to realize the power of microbiome and we see it in the soil and the rhizosphere. And if you think of a kid, like how much dirt did you suck in and inhale? And <laughs> when you're like, throwing and it's generationally, yeah. you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Like versus someone that is families that have been moved off the farm for generations. And so that, this is maybe, a, <laughs> a no, silly, I love it. Keep going. <laughs> but it's a yeah. side topic. But the more I thought about it, I'm like, um, this makes a lot of sense. And Chris, and I have had these conversations a lot and I feel like he should maybe even be in here. Maybe another time we yeah, can, yeah, we should, can I would love to do that. Um, grab him. But um, there's so much with your microbiome in your stomach and seeing it just through eczema as a kid to not having it later on to um, just really, for me, I felt better. Like it was crazy, the difference of just, and then as I started to eat a little bit cleaner and healthier food, um, I started going, dang, like I tried to go eat McDonald's and I was like, oh, I <laughs> why would I do this to myself? Like people can do this, but I, we can change our gut biome, excuse me, to, um, 
handle that stuff. You know, we evolve. And so I think there is some science behind it too. Cause, uh, David Montgomery wrote that book. You are what you ate. I don't know if you've, I don't recognize what you're talking. Yeah. 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 And they talk a ton about like mold soil microbiome and like gut microbiome and how they are kind of linked together. Yeah. I, and I, I'm not an expert by any means, but yeah, I think there's something. Yeah. So I I don't know. That was kind of my, I think maybe that's going to be a new go-to answer. Like it's, it's in my gut. It's in my, (laughs) it's in my microbiome. It sounds really, sounds cooler than saying it's in my stomach. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) So, um, and I, to be honest, maybe there's part of me that hopes that that's a real statement, you know, that Mm -hmm. if I can get more people on my farm, more people in my cover crop fields, more people out with the cows and just animals and seeing that, um, I was fortunate enough kind of back up a little bit too, is my great grandpa on our farm actually had all of the fifth graders in Spokane used to tour our farm oh, as part of a, a school. Yeah. Then it went to my grandpa and then there was like a little window where they quit having that happen. And then my dad started doing it. So I grew up with all the third graders in Spokane coming out and touring our farm yeah, that's cool. and seeing now, even just, but back then just being blown away that, um, kids would show up and they would want to sit in the front yard and just touch the dog and play with the dog. And then having a teacher, like, like you're trying to do this tour and you're like, they won't come over here. And they're just like, just leave them alone. The kid's never pet a dog in his life. And you're like, this is in Spokane, Washington, which I have thought of was pretty rural still, small town. And there's kids that have never pet a dog, let alone a chicken. You know, we'd have little baby chicks saying, this is going to be a chicken nugget. Or where does your food come from? And their answer was always the grocery store. Who makes the food? The grocery store. You know, like just that disconnect of being off of the farm and, and it's for us farmers, like we have to realize like, that's our job. You know, we kind of get this hermit style where we like, Oh, I got to protect our, you know, our little kingdom. And I'm just trying to survive because survive because farming is tough, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, I don't ever want to sound like a complaining farmer. Cause that's what some people say. We just complain about the weather, the price, this <laughs> yeah, and that. Yeah, yeah. But there's things that are out of our hands that we have no idea. Like, you know, you can't control the weather. You can't control how much water you get. You can't control the price. Um, and those things we probably need to work on fixing and you Mm -hmm. can't, you know, why do we raise so much wheat? Why are we raising this much wheat? And then we import wheat from Canada and not to get on these tangents, but like we just brought wheat into our country. Like, is it because it's the variety? I'm sure that we can figure out how to raise that variety. It, and not to say that anything's bad about Canada, but, you know, it's like, well, if we have this problem with wheat price being absolutely horrible right now, mm-hmm. you know, why are we raising this many acres? What if we, what if we create our own supply and demand as farmers and come together and talk about like flourish, you know, like, Hey, let's put half of the acres into wheat in the cover crops. Yeah. If we're going to save the planet and move forward by using things like cover crop and, you know, I don't buy into the whole carbon credit world, even though I have a company that has that in the name of it on the side. <laughs> but um, uh, I think that there's, it's like Dr. Jonathan Lundgren, we just listened to talk, um, that I do believe they're going to measure the life on our farms. Mm-hmm. And I will say with cover crops, um, hedgerows that I've tore out to putting back to just letting areas not be farmed anymore because they weren't worth farming. Mm-hmm. This, the life that's there is shocking. Yeah. Like uh, the cows now having birds landing on their back. You know, like I don't remember that as a kid. I don't remember, I don't remember digging in our dirt and having worms. And now I've got worms out in my fields, you know, and 
do I have an idea of like how many I should have at this moment? No, you know, there's guys that do that, but I think there's things like the cover crops and you walk out there and it's the end of September and it's 19 degrees and I'm still hearing bees buzzing around, which they shouldn't be out there, let alone I'm like, where did these all come from? They weren't here last year. So just like the community of insects that we saw in the cover crop fields last summer, Josh and I got to talk a little bit more about his farming community, specifically the Rouge farmers. I'll let him explain. We, Jason, Chris, and I have some funny stories. Like we delivered triticale to the coast while we went to a conference over there about bread making. <laughs> and we thought we were pretty cool. And some, one of us, it probably was me because I've got some dyslexia, but we wrote instead of the rogue farmer group chat, and there was like a couple other guys in it. It was rouge. <laughs> so I'll just take credit for it, even though I don't know if I did it. Yeah. But um, yeah, so we've just had these like constant things of like the rouge farmers, you know, we were thought we were, cause we were doing things that were off the wall and yeah, crazy, yeah, yeah. but um, that's awesome. But that part of it, I believe farmers have to get back to whether that happened at the coffee shops. I didn't have that growing up. We were a pretty small community. We were a little bit of a community in ourselves that mm -hmm. we had so many kids on the farm working. And, yeah. But um, it is interesting. I see like smaller groups like the Rouge Farmers yeah. <laughs> yeah. in like all these different places too. So I think it does happen. Maybe not in the coffee shop, but. So even like the Flourish meeting, like it was actually really fun to be there. And the conversation, you guys like just let it kind of roll and it got a little sideways here and there. But at the end of the day, um, 45 for me, kind of midlife going and maybe midlife. Well, that's a, to be determined, <laughs> but, um, just going, why am I farming? Yeah. Like, why am I farming a crop that could be worth really $10 an acre? If you took all the subsidies and crop insurance and all the inputs and the overhead, the things that farmers don't even really want to talk about the costs and the costs of the hours we put in, um, that I think, what was it Lundgren that said, you know, you could plant one pumpkin plant in the whole <laughs> yeah. field and you're going to get your 10 bucks, bucks an acre, back. you know, yeah. it's yeah. like, like that, those things do resonate a little yeah. bit. Um, and not, and I know there's some, you know, where I farm and like some, I always call it God's country down in the Palouse, you know, mm -hmm. where you guys can raise 120 bushel wheat day in and day out. Um, that's for me, it's like, it's still, there's that question of like, why are you doing this? And we, as farmers, or I should say as Josh, um, probably theology by Josh is that like, I sat in a lot of meetings and a lot of trying to get my chemical credit hours in every year and just got fed the same stuff all the time and just bought into it. And we all find people don't like to be uncomfortable. And so you yeah. go find the guys you're comfortable with. So you might be in the tillage group. You might be in the no tillage group. You might be in the min till group. But I think that... The reality is that farmers, if we look at all these things that are coming down the pike, farmers are low hanging fruit mm -hmm. and they're easy to pick off and easy to point out and say they're wrecking the world. Like I still much as kiss the ground and little, big little farm. And I haven't seen new, the new one common ground, but so many of these are saying it's farming. Farming is the problem. And I'm going to go, it's culturally the problem. Maybe, mm -hmm. you know, like we as Americans have come into this country and done what since we've been here day one, you know, we made the local 
indigenous people sick. We tried to farm a certain way. They had to come back and say, here's how you should do it. Saved our butts, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, and not to get on a totally wild tangent there, but it, like, I think there's some things like culturally, it's, it's not just farming, it's our culture, you know, yeah. like we put these cities together and. Yeah. And you're not the only person that I've talked to that says we need to like get people connected to know where their food's coming from. I've had so many people say that to me actually. And they're like, oh, well, let's put up signs. And I'm like, I don't know if signs is the, just the way to do it. But like, like you were talking about earlier, having those kids come to the farm yeah, and like actually connect to something, they'll probably remember that forever. Yeah, I was actually uh, two two days ago. I was reading some kind of just going through this this theme of like, why am I farming, or how do I farm? What's the Bible say about farming, or what's this say about that? And one of the things in the Bible is kind of funny is they were saying when you fallow, you leave that crop out there, and it's for like the poor and the beasts. Oh, interesting. Of the earth, you know, and like that's a that's one idea. But like, I thought, how cool would that be? Like, if every seven years, my cover crop on this rotation is designed for people to come and I don't care if they roll around in it, pick it, take (laughs) Take sunflowers, take radishes, go make some, you know, like one of the jokes is we made radish bacon, you know, like that was like a whole daikon radish bacon is like a thing of like (laughs) not eat meat. Like I go make some daikon radishes for you (laughs) non-meat eaters, you know, like, but if you actually designed your cover crop to like give away or just be an educational, Mm -hmm. whether it's, the farmer doesn't have to be there to ed- do the education. Like if you're not an upfront guy and you don't want to be in public, like, Hey, like your local conservation district or the local school, find the local school teacher that would geek out on this. Or maybe there's some grad students that like, Hey, need a project for the summer. And it's like, okay, take people on these cover crop fields. Yeah. Like, we get, yeah. We get approached by grad students all the time. Yeah. Really good idea. Um, can we shift gears a little bit? Yeah. Sorry. No, yeah, no, no, it's too this many is, days. this is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so minimizing pesticides was like one of the goals and addressing compaction. And then it sounds like maybe you want to uh, minimize other synthetic inputs, like any other fertilizers. And Yeah. Um, so as I look at a lot of the bottom line and you start crunching numbers, you know, does it make sense to put 60 units of N down? And then when I do put 60 units of N down, I'm now spraying for rust being told I should probably put a micronutrient treatment down, or if I use this herbicide, you should follow it up with these. Um, and then that has led me down to probably where we're going to go, the road of extracts. Mm-hmm. How do you farm without that? How do you wean off of it? Um, and I can tell you firsthand and so can all the local farmers and the Rouge farmers and <laughs> my field men that if you want to shoot your foot in the foot, shoot yourself in the foot with a shotgun, do what Josh did. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, because uh, trying to go back to um, fish and that, you know, I thought, okay, I'm all in. And this kind of my style um, is I just get so pumped about something that I want to carry the world with me and tell yeah. everybody about like, this is going to be the best thing ever. And there was some big crash and burns um, with going fish and, now knowing what I know when I, I say fish, but it was with sea minerals, fish, biologicals in there. Um, I dampened off a field of canola, about 300 acres, came up, got about two inches tall, and then just rotted off. Oh, no. Uh, had crop yields that were nowhere near they should be, like just embarrassment. Um, 
Are you just, were you just experimenting on it or were you going like, I was like, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not paying my local co-op for all that nitrogen. Mm-hmm. And, and I knew at the time that this is way healthier. Um, let alone it's like, this is like what we were doing back in the day. We were putting like fish in the furrow yeah, and yeah. then, then you like, you know, you're putting all these different things, sea minerals. I could just, I could just envision it. Like as we, as these cultures moved on and actually kind of researching Mayan soils, um, that this is pretty normal bone meal and biochar and trying to wrap your head around, like, I can't get biochar in my field. So, um, I got to try these other things. And so they were expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but I saw some things happen in those couple train wreck years where it was like worms came back on my farm pretty quickly. I didn't necessarily see it with no-till. I'd actually kind of done kind of back to some min-till because mm-hmm. we'd had some really wet years of the no-till and we just, just tore them up with big ruts and getting stuck. I think the one year we got our sprayer stuck, I think it was 65 times trying to get between fertilizing, top dressing, and then uh, spraying the fields. Like it was just, it was a miserable year of, so we'd gone back to some tillage, but the worms were there and I was like, this is interesting. What were those things that you mentioned that you did learn from those train wreck years? Um, that I actually, I had really had some, I had some wheat. So I did some trials and my trials are pretty all or nothing. So mm-hmm. to say I didn't have a field or like a check. Yeah. Um, I went back to the gypsum, put down some fish and had wheat stalks that were like just thicker than thick. Hmm. And I haven't fact checked this, but at one point somebody said that wheat is actually, a, should be almost a hollow stem. I mean, not hollow, should be a uh, should just be like a stalk. There should be no hollow stem in the wheat. Oh, interesting. So, um, I haven't fact checked that, but we've gotten some pretty thick stalks now out there in the wheat. And some guys can tell you that. Um, I also saw nutrient cycling happen. I didn't have the terminology, but I was like, man, that field has no straw in the spring left on it. Like you could see the standing stubble, but in between there it was like, that stuff's disappeared. Like yeah. where'd it go? Was, was that, was the yield not there? Did the combine do a really good job by blowing it up or like what happened here? You know, like, so those things were starting to like in my brain go, okay, there's some changes here. It was a fun story kind of going back to them in the public, um, to be able to say, this is fish. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, it what? stinks really bad, <laughs> yeah. but this is fish, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, and, and there's things in farming and this is probably hopefully just for farmers, but when we pull the hose off the sprayer or we pull the hose off the seed drill, like you lose liquid. Mm-hmm. And what is that pile that hits the ground? And when you're like, this is a hundred percent safe, healthy. Yeah. It's not gonna be a dead spot next year in the field. Um, those are things that like, you can just go, okay, like this is, I can go home to this. My kids aren't going to get sick from this. The neighbor kids, the neighbor dogs. Yeah. Um, the birds, the animals, you know, seed treats been one. I actually you know, if you kind of back it up to, I started pulling seed treat off my seed almost 10 years ago. Oh, wow. But I would have to buy it from the local dealers because we'd run out or we didn't have enough to clean that year. Um, we'd have pink seed treat back on our seed and the canola we had it on there, the lentils we bought had it on there, things like that. But now knowing what's on there, you're like, man, 
you know, that shouldn't even spill on top of the ground. Right. You know what I mean? Like, and I hate saying these things because it could, the wrong ears that falls on, but like you were saying earlier though, everybody has their own situation and like, I don't know. Yeah. You're deciding to go down that route and I think it's a good, yeah. And so good reasons. (laughs) And I just think of our farmers, you know, like a lot of guys have a pretty rough end of their life because of cancers or this Mm -hmm. or that Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And I, my hope is that this newer generation will be like, wear rubber gloves with that stuff, (laughs) wear a mask. You know, I don't know how many years I didn't wear a mask and you're filling the drill and you're back there, you're about to run out. So your head's in the drill and the dust is, you're just sucking it all in. You're not, you're just jumping in out of the tractor. And so there's a lot of that stuff that just being naive that we had no idea, um, that how bad it was, or could it be bad? Or Mm -hmm. can we, you know, my hope is we can start changing some of this, you know, we can detox our bodies, hopefully, you know, like, yeah, as science goes, like if food is healing, which I I do believe now Mm -hmm. that can we be doing things like fermented kefir and, you know, just fermentate, whether it's even our, you know, they're talking about fermented um, composting and, you know, teas. And like, if you can start growing these things and getting our guts back in like order, then, you know, can we start detoxing our systems or healing? No, I like, yeah, I I do like that idea of, yeah, healing ourselves through the food we eat. Um, And I think that's like one of the biggest motivators from what I've been hearing too. One is like, you want to leave the soil better. A lot of people say like, leave the soil better. It's just like maybe the right thing to do, but then also like growing better food is another good way to go. That was the first part of our conversation with Josh Riddle. We'll be releasing the second part in a couple weeks, so stay tuned to learn more about the good, the bad, and the ugly of extracts, as well as learn about Josh's experience with roller crimping, worm castings, and other cropping practices. This podcast was brought to you by the Palouse Conservation District. Funding is provided by USDA's Conservation Innovation Grants Program. To find out more information, check out the Flourish website at inwflourish.org. Thanks so much for listening and keep an eye out for our next episode.